This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Former President Donald Trump liked to brag about the conservative imprint he left on the federal judiciary, appointing 230 judges to the bench who were mostly white men. Who percentage-wise has done better than me with judges, tell me? I'll give you a hint. He appointed 100% of the federal judges and 100% of the United States Supreme Court. George Washington. Now President Joe Biden is moving faster than any modern-day president to reshape the judiciary, announcing a slate of racially diverse nominees with a wide range of professional experience. Not a single white man made the list composed entirely of women and people of color, and more than a third who served as public defenders. Joining me is Professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. Leah, tell us about the list of nine women and two men. I think that the nominees are exceptionally diverse along several axes. I think one of the most important metrics of diversity is professional diversity, what type of career they've had thus far. It's no secret that the federal courts contain significantly number of public defenders and that it's rare to have public defenders appointed to the federal courts. Two of the three president's nominees to the federal courts of appeals are former public defenders. So that by itself is just huge. I mean, there's something like less than 8% of currently serving court of appeals judges are former public defenders. Less than 3% of district judges who are currently serving are former public defenders. And two of the seven nominees to the district courts were former public defenders. So the professional diversity is quite striking. In addition to the public defenders, you have people who have worked for city and local governments. And so that is also notable. The nominees are also demographically diverse. Nine of the 11 nominees were women. 30% of all federal judges are currently women. There have only been eight Black women to ever serve as Court of Appeals judges. All three of the president's Court of Appeals nominees were Black women, including judges who would be the first and only Black judges on that Court of Appeals. So the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit has never had a Black judge. Tiffany Cunningham would be the first Black judge on that circuit. There are currently no Black judges serving on the Seventh Circuit, a jurisdiction that includes Wisconsin and Illinois. And so Judge Candace Jackson Akihulu would be, you know, the only Black judge on that court. So I think that, you know, the nominees would diversify and in a lot of ways integrate the courts of appeals and also add considerable professional diversity as well. Former President Trump was quite successful in helping to make the federal judiciary more conservative. This is just the first strike for Biden, but does it even make a dent in diversifying the federal bench? I think these nominees alone won't make a huge dent just because they're small in number, but it will make a dent because it will integrate several courts of appeals that don't currently have Black judges. So it's significant for that reason. It's also significant that several of the district court nominees will be the first. It will result in the first Muslim American federal judge anywhere, the first Asian American woman to serve on the D.C. district court, the first Black woman to serve on the Maryland district court. So I think that those are significant achievements and milestones, even if, numerically speaking, these 11 nominees are not going to make a huge dent given the 200-plus Trump nominees. 
Progressive activists had been pushing for more judges from non-traditional backgrounds, as you mentioned. Explain why that's important. It's important for a few reasons. One is it provides for a very different perspective on the legal system. If you have spent time representing people against the government, then if you're someone who has been representing the government and arguing for more government power. If you are someone who has seen, let's say, less salutary uses of government power, then you might be more rightfully skeptical about some exercises of government power or more understanding about different kinds of litigants who come before the federal court. There has also been some very important empirical research that suggests Judges who formerly represented corporate interests or served as prosecutors are more likely to rule against employees and against workers. And so we know that some professional experience is some indication about how they are actually going to decide and view cases in the federal court. Do you think that President Biden was thinking of the evenly split Senate when this list was approved? Is there a possibility that any of these will be difficult confirmations? So I don't think there's any reason to think that any of these nominees will be difficult confirmations. They are all exceptionally well credentialed, very well regarded. So there's no reason to think that these nominees will have difficult confirmations. You know, they are different in that they have different professional backgrounds, but I don't think that should be a cause for a difficult Senate confirmation when it seems like the Democratic Party and the leader of the Democratic Party indicated that's something that they value. Do you think that progressives will be happy with this list? I think that for an initial list, they are and they should be very happy. Um, I don't, you know, I'm sure that we all have things that we would like to see in the next batch of nominees. I think I personally would like it if more of the district court nominees had more similar profiles to the Court of Appeals nominees as far as their professional background um, and age. But it's, it's a list that I'm very happy with as an initial list and that I hope other progressives are as well. Under former President Trump, there was an effort to get judges who were very young, who would be on the bench for decades. Are these judges young? So that is part of what I was alluding to when I said I hope that the district court nominees in the future more closely resemble the Court of Appeals nominees. The Court of Appeals nominees are in their early 40s or they are 50. The district court nominees are actually on the older side. That still makes for nominees that are substantially older than most of President Trump's nominees. He was nominating many judges in their 30s and many Court of Appeals nominees in their early 40s. Very few judges were appointed while they were over 50. So I think that Perhaps future batches could involve judges who are more closely resembling the age bracket from which President Trump was drawing. But still, the Court of Appeals nominees from this batch are trending in that direction. Former President Obama insisted on having the ABA, the American Bar Association, review the judicial candidates. Biden is not requiring that. Do you think that has any impact at all? It's not clear that it will or that it should, uh, given that at least one prior administration discarded the ABA rating system, and given that there's, again, some evidence that that rating system has historically operated to the detriment of groups who are not historically represented in the federal judiciary, then I think there are all, you know, good reasons why the administration is not requiring ABA vetting. Federal Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson 
was on the short list for the Supreme Court even before Biden put her on this list for the D.C. Appellate Court, which is considered a feeder court to the Supreme Court. I think she is one very possible future Supreme Court nominee. Her background is everything that the president has said you know, he's interested in, someone who has served as a public defender, someone who served on a sentencing commission, would add some needed demographic diversity to the Supreme Court. So she is going to be one of several candidates, I'd imagine, but likely one of the front runners. Tell us a little more about her background. So Katanji Brown-Jackson graduated from Harvard College and Harvard Law School. She was an editor on the Harvard Law Review. She clerked for judges on every level of the federal court, at the district court, where she currently serves on the Court of Appeals, and then for the U.S. Supreme Court. She clerked for Justice Breyer. Um, she's also clerked for both Democratic uh, appointees on the court and Republican appointees on the court. After clerking, she worked as a public defender. Since becoming a judge, she has served on the United States Sentencing Commission, which creates rules and regulations governing all federal sentencing. So she has really worked in a bunch of different areas in addition to public defense. And as a judge on the Sentencing Commission, she also worked at a law firm, Morrison and Forrester. So she's really worked in many different sectors of the legal profession and has really achieved much of what there is to achieve in the legal profession as well. As a D.C. District Court judge, Judge Jackson has been involved in a lot of high-profile cases. She's ruled against the Trump administration several times, including in the case involving former White House counsel Don McGahn, where she wrote that presidents are not kings. I wonder if that might cause her any problems during confirmation hearings. I don't think that it should cause her any problems. I mean, her opinions are very well regarded, you know, in the uh, in legal circles. And so even though she's been involved in some high profile cases, the way that she has resolved them, you know, has garnered her a lot of respect. Is it helpful to have out there the names of the people who are likely to replace a justice? I think it's a complicated question. I think we, on one hand, don't really want to turn presidential elections into judicial elections as well. You know, federal judges are supposed to be appointed and confirmed, not running for office and putting them on the ticket, I think might strike people as not a great way to run a constitutional democracy. Um, You know, on the other hand, I think that uh, it's probably good for people to understand that the two parties are appointing very different people to the federal court. Um, And so having people understand who are possible contenders, Supreme Court seats, you know, uh, under one party than the other, um, it might be helpful in that respect. Um, But I think it's a really complicated question. In announcing the list, President Biden emphasized that this was the earliest batch of court picks by a new administration. Is there a reason why he's emphasizing that? Is it because President Obama was criticized for acting too slowly? Yes, I think not only was President Obama criticized for acting too slowly, but he was criticized because he didn't place enough emphasis on appointing federal judges. We saw President Trump and Senate Majority Leader, then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, place a lot of emphasis on confirming as many judges as they could. And I think people wanted to see a Democratic administration value the federal courts to the same extent and with the same seal as the last Republican administration did. Mitch McConnell had said at one point, I'm not leaving any vacancy open, and they really packed the courts whenever they could. Will Joe Biden have enough vacancies to be able to to change the courts, to, you know, to flip the courts back to more liberal rather than more conservative? I think that that remains to be seen. Um, a lot of it depends on whether 
federal judges who are currently eligible to take senior status or retire do so. Um, some of this depends on whether, you know, a Congress might explore adding additional judgeships uh, to district judges as the Judiciary Conference has called for. Um, but I think whether, you know, President Biden is able to make, a, you know, a huge mark on the federal courts in the same way that President Trump does uh, depends um, on those things which are a little bit outside of, you know, his control and also that we just don't know about yet. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leah. That's Professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. In a downtown Minneapolis courthouse that has been fortified with concrete barriers, fences, and barbed wire, testimony began this week in the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin on charges of murder and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd, a death that ignited months of protest for racial justice and against police brutality. The prosecution began its opening statement with the video seen around the world of Chauvin pressing his knee into Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell said that Chauvin didn't let up, even after a handcuffed Floyd said 27 times that he couldn't breathe. You will learn that on May 25th of 2020, Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed this badge when he used excessive an unreasonable force upon the body of Mr. George Floyd. But defense attorney Eric Nelson said that Chauvin was not to blame for Floyd's death. The evidence will show that Mr. Floyd died of a cardiac arrhythmia that occurred as a result of hypertension, his coronary disease, the ingestion of methamphetamine and fentanyl, and the adrenaline throwing, flowing through his body. Joining me is former public defender Krista Groshek, managing attorney of Groshek Law in Minneapolis. Krista, what do you think of the prosecution's strategy of not waiting, playing the entire video during the opening statement? It was a great strategy for the prosecution. I mean, that's the most compelling piece of evidence that they have. And the way that they sort of encapsulated that centerpiece was with colorful language, like their wordplay. They talk about how Chauvin betrayed his badge. He wouldn't let up. He wouldn't get up. We heard that over and over again. We talked about how bystanders call the police on the police. We heard about the blood choke. That video, you know, ensconced with that wordplay was very effective. It's a hard video to watch, no doubt. What about the defense's opening statement? And does it show the strategy ahead? Well, I think it was a foreshadowing, as most opening statements are, about where the defense is going to go. And we really haven't heard much about that in some of the pretrial motions. So what we were able to learn is that the defense plans to push on this idea that because of where the bystanders who did the filming were positioned, you couldn't see what was happening on the other side of the police car. You couldn't see what was happening with his legs. You couldn't see what the officers were doing. You just see, you know, sort of his head and Chauvin around or about his neck and back. The defense also talked about the whole part of the story being the 15 minutes before bystanders started filming with Floyd in this position. They talk about the whole story being captured on a city camera perched atop a high pole. They talk about the whole story being Floyd's longstanding use of drugs, his medical conditions. And they talk about how, you know, use of force is something that even police officers don't like, but it's a necessary part of the job. It was a very metered, I think, and mindful opening. And, you know, really what I think Nelson was doing was he's trying to 
step back the emotion that that video certainly caused jurors to feel and get them, you know, thinking in their brains about common sense, the whole story, even use some legal terms like totality of the circumstances. And then he focused a lot on causation um, as to those medical issues, as to being diagnosed with COVID, having heart issues, use of the opioids. He talked about the county medical examiner's findings about how it wasn't a really clear-cut case of cause of death. And he talked about how once that sort of tenuous finding was made, then prosecutors went out and shopped the case, if you will, to try to get more medical examiner opinions because they didn't like Baker's. And so I think it was a very, like I said, a very metered, a very thoughtful approach about how jurors really need to get into their brains and get out of their hearts and emotions to decide this case. So is the central question in the case going to be what caused Floyd's death, something that the medical experts are going to testify about? Well, this case should be about causation. This case should not be about unauthorized use of force or race, or we heard over and over again on the prosecutor's opening 929, this case is sort of flipped from the traditional case. So typically speaking, prosecutors are all about, you know, this is the law, black and white, let's put the legal questions out there and answer the legal questions without emotion. Well, it's now flipped. Prosecutors are talking about all of the things that amount to making an emotional decision, police brutality. They did say that it shouldn't be about race, but of course, everybody in there is thinking that's what it's about. So we see the prosecution talking about a lot of things, but they didn't talk a whole lot about causation. They referenced it briefly in that he's been a drug user, but that's not what caused his death. The defense is arguing that that is, in fact, what you see here, and that's based upon medical evidence, based upon what was found during the course of the autopsies. One of the things that's interesting about Baker's autopsy is that his heart was so unremarkable that pictures weren't even taken of George Floyd's heart, which, again, is a causation factor there as well. So we should be talking about causation. That's what the law says. If Derek Chauvin didn't cause his death by the actions that he took, whether they're distasteful, whether we don't like it, whether we think that we have a broken, biased, racist system, if he didn't cause the death, he's not guilty. And that's what this trial should be about, and the focus really should be on what the experts have to say and which experts the jury believes and why. So with the question of causation at the forefront, this is going to end up being a battle of the experts? Right. It should be. It shouldn't be about all this emotion. It shouldn't be about betraying this badge. It shouldn't be about a blood show cold and the number of minutes. It should be about causation, and the experts are the really only ones that can educate the jury about whether or not the state can prove their case. The defense in the opening statement said that Chauvin did what he was trained to do. Do you think he's going to try to make the argument that this was something that was, you know, an authorized chokehold or whatever? Is he going to try to make that argument? I think so, and I think he's going to do that based upon a reference to that May 2019 arrest of Floyd, where he acted really similarly. And, you know, it was really out of control based upon what seems to have been at that point, his use of fentanyl, the very same fentanyl pills a year prior. So then, yeah, I do think they're going to bring in information and testimony that the only choice that an officer has is to try to subdue that arrestee to avoid, you know, potential harm to the arrestee and or others. So I do think that's exactly where the defense is going. Is that wise? Because if you look at that prior incident, 
in that incident, the police talked him down. They arrested him without any real incident. So does that backfire on the defense? Well, I think the defense is stuck with the fact that this is what Chauvin chose to do under the circumstances. Things that are different in this May 2020 event from the May 19 event is that we do have video footage where there was 15 minutes of back and forth, not wanting to get in the car, the car, I think, actually moving. It can be seen in the video that the police vehicle was moving because there was enough resistance from Floyd at that time. So I think there is a difference in how those two events played out. And it was at that point when things were starting to ramp up that Chauvin shows up on the scene. He's the senior officer. He decides that he could be facing a situation where Mr. Floyd is experiencing you know, some kind of delirium and given his size could be dangerous. So I think the defense is stuck with that. I think they have to work with that. And I think on cross-examination, they can deal with the police chief's criticism of how Chauvin behaved from the point that, of course, the police aren't going to endorse it now. To do so would, you know, implicate many others, not just Chauvin. Everybody, you know, push back and is doing what they can do to distance themselves from Chauvin right down to the use of force experts and to other people in the Minneapolis Police Department. Nobody's aligning with him. And, you know, I think Nelson can argue that those people did that strategically for themselves and for the department. Is there anything remarkable in the defense or is this the kind of defense that we've seen before in cases where police officers are defendants? I believe that in these cases that have come before, you know, we've seen a lot of not guilty verdicts, a lot. We've seen a lot of officers not even charged, like the Eric Garner officers. They weren't even charged. And, you know, that's a similar case. And so, yeah, I I believe the defense finds themselves in a position where they have to say, given their specific training, given their experience, given what they know of the risks and dangers of encountering people under the influence on the street, that they need to take precautions and they make these split-second decisions. Now, the prosecution is anticipating that argument you heard in the opening statement, right? There was no split-second decision here. And they break down the seconds and say there was, of the 529 seconds that were available for split-second decision-making, there was no split-second anything. It was a long, sort of prolonged, continued decision. But to answer your question, I believe the strategy has been effective, and I think it's what's allowed for officers to receive not guilty verdicts and no charges at all. The judge allowed prosecutors to add a third-degree murder charge to the charges of second-degree murder and manslaughter. Does that give the jury a compromised position or a middle ground if if they can't come to a decision on the more serious charge? It does. Third-degree depraved mind murder is an interesting charge in that two months ago, it was not a viable charge based upon Minnesota's case law, 100-year history of applying that charge. Generally speaking, that charge um, was only appropriate when a person drove 100 miles through crowded downtown streets where their actions were just depraved mind, crazy, but they weren't directed at one person. There was a police officer, Mohammed Nur, who was convicted of the depraved mind. When that happened, uh, defense attorneys and, and most uh, people engaged in, in legal work in the state felt that at the time he appealed it to the appellate court, that would have been overturned because it just didn't fit, didn't fit the definition of third degree. Well, our appellate court chastised Judge Cahill for throwing that charge out. And even in light of that history, the court went to great lengths to say, no, it should apply. And they did that very close in time to when Mr. Chauvin was going to trial. They instructed uh, Judge Cahill, essentially, um, that he must 
um, put that charge back into play, and he sort of begrudgingly did so, even though um, Mr. Neuer is appealing that to the Supreme Court, and we don't have an answer as to what will happen um, on that case. And then if there is a conviction here, what will happen on this case? And so, yes, it becomes an easier charge for the jury to use um, in terms of putting a conviction on Mr. Chauvin, and that's because they don't have to find that he intentionally did anything. Just that he was out of his head. He was depraved. He was acting crazy. He wasn't thinking. And he did something that he shouldn't have. That still, they still have to prove that he caused the death, though, by those actions. But it does make the first part of their finding easier. The second-degree charge requires that the state prove that Mr. Chauvin had intent to assault, that he had intent to um, make it so Mr. Floyd couldn't breathe. And I think that gets harder to do when you, you know, start looking at Nelson's arguments. He was doing what he was trained to do. There was resistance of the arrest. So if the jury isn't of the mind to say he had the intent to assault, then the third degree murder charge becomes much more viable because the jury can just say, well, he was out of his mind. He was doing something that, you know, was imminently dangerous to life. We know that. And it caused the death of Mr. Floyd. Now, again, I stress. They still have to believe that what he did caused the death. And, and if, in fact, they can't make that finding, then even with the third degree, they should return a, a verdict of not guilty. How effective are the prosecution's first witnesses, most of them people who are watching what happened? I think it's a good move for the prosecution. Is sort of this lumping up of emotion, right? They started with the video. It doesn't get any more intense than that. And then they're bringing the jurors to the scene, to where this man died. And they are seeing that through the eyes of these witnesses who are obviously very emotionally moved, who still, you know, are exhibiting emotion on the stand. I mean, their whole case, the centerpiece is the video, and it's ensconced by the experience and the emotions of the people that were there. So I think it's a, it's a very consistent and smart way for the prosecution to put their case in. It's very effective. Thanks, Krista. That's Krista Groshek, Managing Attorney of Groshek Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.